The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. I think the fact that the class was at 8 a.m. three days a week was meant to discourage the seniors, at least the ones who were less disciplined from taking her class. Mrs. Laster was head of the department, a PhD in English from Harvard, by far one of the most qualified at our public high school, and she bore all the strength and demanding comportment we thought came with that degree, as well as the mastery of her subject. Once in class, half asleep, I blurted out an answer to a question she asked without thinking. In the slow turn of her head and the raised eyebrow, it was clear that whatever character's name I had blurted out without any thought was absolutely and entirely the wrong answer. But in a strange turn of events, Mrs. Laster smiled coyly at me. Is that your answer, she said, as if she suspected me of incredible arch humor of having intentionally said exactly the wrong answer. So panic, which had set in, motivated my atavistic brain to think as quickly as possible, what character is the most opposite to the one I just named? And I smiled and nodded back and shook my head and said another name, and it happened to be right. She laughed, and we moved on. There we were, all of us 17, 18-year-olds, wet behind the ears, applying for colleges, wondering about our future, and reading Shakespeare, including the tragedies. I had a friend in high school who studied music, piano, and voice on weekends. She decided one time to practice Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata on her own because she loved it, and then she asked her piano teacher if they could study it together. She and I were outraged when the teacher said no, that no young person had enough life experience to ever play that piece the way it was meant to be played. Maybe the same could be said of reading King Lear. Certainly it has plenty of over-the-top drama, kings and heirs and bastard children and betrayal and wars and palace intrigue and power games and tragically flawed habits of the heart. But what really did any of us know about this? How many of us were ready to understand tragedy? But these moments do plant seeds and one of those seeds was when Mrs. Laster asked us to write an essay on something that Lear's daughter, Reagan, said. What need one, the daughter Reagan says aloud while in conversation with her father. It's said to him, interestingly, in third person, almost indirectly, like she's musing on the question with him, but it being Shakespeare, she, he is also talking to us. What need one? I wonder if we knew enough to know the answer at that point in life, we knew enough to ask it and keep asking it. Because it's one of the essential questions to life. What need one? What do we need? 
In the play at this point, at the point that Reagan asks the question, the old king has already given away his kingdom, split it between his two eldest daughters, because in the game of tell me how much you love me, the two spoke so eloquently of their feelings and their father was flattered. The youngest girl, Cordelia, so loved her father, though, that she found herself, if you remember, at a loss for words when asked. Her love was beyond naming. But this category of love and nuance was lost on this king. And for his youngest daughter's silence, she's banished without kingdom, without family. And Lear lays a plan for a life split between the two daughters' homes and kingdoms. It's not long, though, before the two daughters grow tired of the king and his retinue of a hundred knights and attendants that he insists upon. It's a costly and an unruly bunch, but also one suspects that the daughters tired too of the man whose whim and selfishness they've had to bow to and service their whole lives. Karma stinks sometimes. And Lear, whose love is unpredictable, whose own needs go first, and who seems only to have seen his daughters for how they serve him, he gets from his girls a little of what he gave. The eldest, Goneril, takes away half of her father's retinue. Reagan, when the king flees to her, threatens to take away half more. And this king, whose whole life was caught up in the trappings of power and wealth, who would bend the world to his might, finds that neither daughter will bend to his will. And he's being stripped of all of the trappings he invested in and far too much energy and ego in. And it's at this moment that Reagan asks that question, like musing between and among them. What need one? Literally in the moment, taken at face value, she's asking a practical question. Daddy, how many knights and courtiers do you need at your disposal? We have plenty of staff, she tells him, ones we can command better than yours to serve you if they are inclined to do so. The king could and should lean into their largesse. In fact, they may require that of him. But the question Reagan asks is more than the little one, the literal one. What she and Shakespeare are asking is more than about how many knights and attendants a king, a retired king, requires. They're asking the question the king never seemed to have asked, the one that got him into this particular place. What does a life really need to be secure? What can we lean on? This January, I did a January fast of sorts. Not alcohol, not caffeine, never caffeine. Shopping. The rule was I could buy food 
and I could buy kind of experiences, so museum and movie tickets and things like that, a lunch out, but not stuff, not breath mints or sweaters or magazines. It was a kind of small what-need-one experiment, you might say. And it revealed some interesting things. First, it's a great way to save money. Second was that necessity is not just the mother of invention, but of deep cleaning and the treasure hunting that results as part of it. It was very exciting some days to find that when I dug in the back of my drawers and closet and pantry, that there were the extra light bulbs I needed, a gift certificate that I got at Christmas. And do you know in Cal a few Christmases ago, do you know in California gift certificates never expire? It's illegal for them to expire. Very fun to find out. I was running out of toothpaste, and I found all those little tiny tubes that the dentist gives you that like don't even really get you through a weekend away. And anyway, I don't really take a lot of weekends away, but they get you through the rest of January. Third, and most surprising, though, of the discoveries was a whole bunch of emotions that I hadn't realized I wasn't paying attention to. It's funny what happens when you stop a reflex, anything I imagine that's become a kind of self-soothing reflex, whether you realized it as you were doing it or not. And part of buying things, for me, served this purpose, even little things, the extra box of tissues, the light bulbs, served this feeling of this purpose of warding off feelings. You only realize it when you stop doing it and you're like, well, what is that thing I'm feeling right now that I can't make go away easily? A feeling of want, a fear of not enough, that none of those things you purchase really make go away. But once you stop soothing them easily, the question arises, not enough of what really? Vanessa, what need one? Loneliness, the aching, scary sense of the pain and the evil that's in the world, a desire to feel purpose, to know that our days and life matter, Missing people we love because they passed away or because we're just miles away from them and we wish we had them right next to us for a cup of tea or a walk. Missing connection of all kinds to our deepest selves, to others, to the world. This is what bubbled up from this experiment this fast, though if you had asked me if I had any of those feelings, I wouldn't have thought they were nearly as present and just below the surface. And yet there's no real surprise, I think, when we feel these things, these normal human emotions, the ones, in fact, that you and I are supposed to feel if we are alive and paying attention. Some of the ones that tell us exactly what we really want and need. What we would write for Mrs. Laster's paper if she invited personal reflections, which she didn't. What need one? In the play, Lear gives Reagan and her castle 
and her angry resistance to his will and wishes a not-so-fond farewell, and he leaves, you may recall, if you've seen or read the play, and walks out of the gates into a storm, a storm he rages in the midst of, as much as the storm itself is raging. I think what I once learned is called the pathetic fallacy that nature mirrors our emotions. Pathetic as in pathos. And he goes out into this storm, whether he knows it or not, because his daughter has asked him a question that he is not equipped to answer. But the storm has the answer for him, I think. Because this fallen king rages in the winds and the rain, accompanied in it by one person, it turns out, a person he also banished once for not particularly good reasons, someone, though, who is loyal enough to have found a way back into the king's company disguised as a simple attendant. And Lear also finds in the storm that his daughter, you may recall, the one he banished, a woman who loves her father beyond words, and now, especially and even despite his flaws, loves him, has gathered an army and is coming to his aid because he believes she was, he was betrayed by his sisters. It doesn't turn out well for Lear in the end, or for his daughters. It's a tragedy, after all, but we were warned. <laughs> but maybe the tragedy is not death or loss of a kingdom, but not realizing what you had when you had it. Realizing how often we reap what we sow, which is a great thing or a bad one, depending on what we plant in the world and water and give sunshine to. So what need one? What do we need deep down? How much is enough? It turns out it's much less than we think. It's much less than a legion of MBA marketers would like us to think. Little enough, probably, too, and I'm looking at Betsy Dar up there, that if we could remember to live enough, the planet and our future together on it would have a chance. What do we need? Yell it out for me. What do we need? What are our needs? All of them. Love, connection, safety, friendship, comfort, food, shelter, medical care, clothes, integrity, Jesus, something to believe in, someone to follow. Enough safety from freedom and fear and persecution. Enough freedom to think and determine our lives, because that's important to us. The ability to grow. I think what we need is to know, in part, that we're using our life to our power, our privilege, to bend that moral arc of the universe down towards justice, towards the good as we know it, as we were taught it, as we believe it to be. To feel that we're not only growing older, but we are growing wiser. <laughs> 
and more compassionate, like the compounding interest for us is on growing a soul, and it grows just as big and just as fast, compounding by the years, as any retirement fund does, actually more so than many of them have been lately. And we need what Lear found in the storm, not a hundred nights and attendants, right? A handful of people, one or two even, but a community if we can find them, that we can lean on, that will hold us up, that will come and find us when we need to be found. As Jordan said this morning with his fresh eyes, and I love the fresh eyes of someone who's new to the community, we aren't investing in the building. In this time when we ask how we financially make this church possible, we're not investing in the building. Though it makes and protects space for us to gather, we're investing, as he rightly said, in this, in each other, in what gets us through the storm, in the connections that we make that make a stronger, like synergy, alchemy, in the joy and the dancing that gets us through <laughs> and makes life a celebration as it should be, even when it's hard work asks a lot of us. We need one another. And I don't know how many of us in that 8 a.m. class of Mrs. Laster's knew that for sure, though the ingredients were all there among us even then. Maybe it doesn't take a lifetime to actually know what's important, but it, it does take a lifetime to prove for yourself how true it is. And then it takes a lifetime to live the demands of it. So thank you all for making this community possible in this chapter of its life with your treasure of heart and mind and rolled up sleeves and yes, of financial commitment too. Because what? Need one? It's all here. Amen. It's not usual that you join the church and right away they ask you to do a reflection. But Jordan's a fabulous and unusual person and he's sharing our last of our annual giving month reflections this morning. So welcome and thank you, Jordan. Hi, everyone. Uh, as you know, I'm Jordan Ong, and as you saw, I'm a new member to the church. I started coming as soon as lockdown was over when UUSF resumed in-person services about a year ago. And today, here I stand, having signed the illustrious book containing the signatures of all of you and thousands of members that have come through the doors of this church over hundreds of years. All not 30 minutes ago. <laughs> now that the ink is dry, I can confess to you that you might recognize me as the person that is consistently 20 minutes late for service. <laughs> I really do apologize for that. But uh, 
Believe it or not, 11 a.m. is still a little bit too early for me. Now, before all that jazz, uh, when I first considered how much I would pledge to become a member of UUSF, I did what my background as a data analyst with an interest in economics told me to do. I asked myself, if I give money to UUSF, what is the opportunity cost of that money? <laughs> Could I give that money to another organization focused on social justice or a political organization advocating for economic equality? Could I just spend that on a fun night out? Should I instead increase how much I give to other charities, including ones with direct impact like UUSC or Act Blue? From a strictly utilitarian point of view, that would be the most effective way to make a change, yes? X amount of dollars equals Y amount of votes, and that ends up creating Z amount of happiness. Very simple, very straightforward. But somewhere in my heart, I know that thinking seems just a bit too easy too reductive, that there was more to UUSF than getting the most immediate needs out of the proverbial, sorry, getting the most immediate ends out of the proverbial means. So when I began to think about the faces, specifically what I saw in the faces of all of you over the past years, I thought of the passion in Reverend Vanessa's face when she talked about the dualism of faith. The excitement in Lori and Dolores' faces when they would tell me about the work of the women's rights groups. The joy on Cheryl Diener's face as she was dancing at the auction she worked so hard to organize. And there she is. <laughs> And the curiosity on Joe's face when he would ask a newcomer how their day went. In so many of you, I see the kindness, the dedication, the joy in making a church that supports and encourages good people to do good things. Furthermore, I have noticed a change in myself. Before coming to UUSF, you might have seen me politely nod at the thought of promoting voter registration, reducing my meat consumption, and serving complete strangers in the community. But it was a less than 10% chance that I would have actually done it. Nor would have I felt the conviction to go on to promote such actions among my, among my circle of friends. And finally, it hit me, like a collision with a 38 bus going full, down, full speed down Geary. My pledge is an investment not in the church itself, but in the work of its people. It is a belief that with just a few basic resources, a meeting space, a supportive staff, 
and maybe a delicious potluck or two, that we can unlock the awesome synergy of this congregation. If this congregation is the seed, this building the fertile ground, then a pledge is the water that allows our dreams for a better world to burst forth into reality, blessed by the sunshine that are our hopes and commitments. Together, we are more conscious, more compassionate, and frankly, do more good things because we are supported by, influenced by, and sometimes pressured by each other. And that's why this pledge to this community has an impact that repays the world many times over. It is for that reason that I consider my pledge to be the best opportunity for the cost, an opportunity that overrides any cost-benefit calculation that one might throw at it. So in closing, I want to say thank you for accepting us new members, myself, into your community and providing us with a chance to grow in the warmth of your life.